Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, friends. Welcome to Snark Monkey episode number four. Um, Not a lot of lead-in to this one because it's pretty self-contained, but here is a guy, Frank Ferrante, not Ferranti, um, who has created a career for himself quite unique, quite singular, and also very much a throwback. If you are a fan of the Marx Brothers and if you are a fan of old-school comedy and vaudeville, welcome, folks. We're going to give you a little insight into what that world might be like now, at least the closest thing to that world that still exists. But more than anything, here's another example of somebody who has created work for himself based upon something that came from a passion, in this case, during childhood and adolescence, and turned into a career in probably a way certainly he or anyone else ever expected. And the journey it's led him on has been pretty great. And also, here is a profile of somebody who's doing well, very well for himself in a very particular way, who is just the nicest, warmest most caring creature. I mean, when you're in this guy's presence, you 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 can't help but just you just want to love him up a little bit. And I don't mean that in a weird way. Or then maybe I do. What do you know? You don't know me. You think you know me? You don't know me. So um, listen to this hour with Frank Ferrante and uh, laugh and give yourself a nice, warm, sudsy, bath-like hug. And just... <laughs> I swear I'm not drunk right now. Uh, I just think uh, this is a great story. So he's had the secret word, uh, which is Snark Monkey, episode number four, Frank Ferrante. It's good to great to see you. I have to oh say, gosh, thank you for coming out to see me. By the way, uh, yeah, I Re- mean, recently, right? The I last figure, year, right? I figure every four to five years, it, I will see the show. Was it Pasadena the last place? It was Pasadena Playhouse. Pasadena Playhouse. And uh, before that, I hadn't seen you since you were at uh, Woodland Hills, I guess. Uh, Pierce um, College, maybe. Pierce College. Yeah, I got work out of that little thing at the Pierce College. That's one? how I got the Teatro Zanzani gig. Fifteen years I've been in that same job, four to six months a year. That all because it was a they did that benefit for. That corral. You're do, right. do you remember that corral? They yeah, opened? that's right. It was raising money for Pierce the horse corral at Pierce College. Yes. <laughs> and I hated doing it. Everything I've ever done, not, we can talk about this. All the things I hate doing end up you know, fueling me somehow and ends up serving me. I remember pushing the piano around with this guy. With, you know, I hated this man. So could, you know, I was getting zero to do it. But I, hadn't, I, was, I was unemployed. So what do you say? Yes, right? I, and this guy's I'm going, and there's a 10 foot Steinway it's like I'm, and it's half an hour before the show and I'm pushing the Steinway piano I'm going Jesus I'm thinking Hal Holbrook's not pushing it but then I thought maybe he is you know he never, he's an old, then I saw the documentary on him recently 
and he's you know he's still doing he does exactly what I do he goes he does the tech he he gives notes on the lights he takes on the sign we're all the same still we're, doing the Mark Twain stuff yeah I saw I have great stories on that but uh, yeah he's get, get up on that oh, all right yeah get up on that okay get, get oh it. we're actually talking oh now. yeah okay. oh no there we go okay. we started ages okay. ago <laughs> <laughs> I record everything oh good yeah. well yeah uh, Frank Ferranti Ferranti yeah Ferranti's good. I've, yeah, people probably did anybody ever try to convince you to change your name by the way no but my father says Ferranti he does it's the Ameri- it's an americanized pronunciation yeah he comes from that time i'm it's really Ferrante is the pronunciation it should be Ferrante Ferrante sounds better well, uh, uh, you have the most fascinating career um well not maybe the most uh, but one of the most based upon what was i know a passion for you since you were a kid that turned into something probably that you didn't expect <laughs> at all. So we have to cover that. I mean, what, what you are most known for, obviously, is Groucho. Right. But we'll get to that. I want to okay. know, A, when Groucho ended your life, and B, where, just where you're from, where you grew up. I grew up in Sierra Madre, California, which is you know, a tiny town in San Gabriel Valley in the Pasadena area. And uh, I think there was 11,000 people in this town. And it was really, it felt like River City, Iowa. Did it, So it didn't feel connected to L.A. or it, Hollywood or It felt that? completely isolated. Really? And I remember being in my, in my bedroom and, and, and this little, this room of mine, I remember looking out and I remember there was a, a street lamp on this cul-de-sac. And I thought, wow, that's big. There's a cul-de-sac. I guess we might matter. This is the, you know, I felt like I was connected to the, to something because I didn't, because it really was a very sterile environment, but beautiful, lovely. But I was craving action, I think, and, and something more. Because it's all more. part of the mass now, right? I mean, there is no – is there any dividing dividing line well, between – I tell you, Larry, the, the actual – I was there today. I'm there all the time because I'm still living in that area. It's still a sweet little town. It's not what it was in the 70s, late 60s and 70s when I, when I grew up there. But it still has that kind of River City, Iowa flavor. Really? Yeah, it's really kind of a podunky and lovely. And the, the Fourth <laughs> of July parade is like right out of – I think the L.A. Times wrote an article about the, the two, two of the towns in L.A. County that were reminiscent of Midwestern towns. One was Altadena and one was Sierra Madre. Interesting. Yeah, and I was very lucky to grow up there. But, but I was bored. But was you might bored. as well have been in – podunk iowa somewhere because you were sitting there craving the spotlight or something i mean uh, or, or just action just yeah in, well, well interest in you know every, everything was very proper i was i went to all bo- i went to um, catholic school taught by nuns nothing but rules i had some <laughs> i mean i mean i saw kids getting beat up by nuns and i would threaten it was not a you know so oh, no. i would love to have been groucho marx in those situations behaving like you know and treating the nuns like margaret dumont i remember being very scared and very shy. So and you you weren't the wisecracking kid. You were a little too, well, <laughs> not, at least to the nuns. After I discovered the Marx Brothers and comedians of that era and ilk, uh, the wisecrack started to emerge in the you know from the back row of my classrooms. <laughs> but uh, you know that was really survival uh, in a way for me. I used to live for you probably were the same way, Larry. I used to live for Mad Magazine. I used to wait for the drugstore arrival. Mm-hmm. Of Mad Magazine when I was 10, 11, 12, 13. I mean, that was like, you know, this is my drug. We are of a similar age, and I actually talked with uh, comedy writer Jim Wise, who's worked on Mad TV and, mm-hmm. and worked with Leno. And Mad Magazine was the first thing out of his mouth when I talked about as a kid 
from a comedy writer standpoint, what was a big influence. And me too. Uh, the Don Martin cartoons, uh, those regular segments. I was doing the little fold-out thing. Right, you know, Al Jaffe. Uh, Al Jaffe. Al Jaffe stuff. Uh, I loved uh, Mort Drucker and because he, was, he, he did these great these great illustrations, and he would parody. They'd parody movies and television shows. And yeah. it was my first taste of of satire. And, right. And, and I was getting it. And it was also sexy. And there was also something really uh, subversive about it, something very wrong. I knew I shouldn't be reading it because I was probably a little too young. Right. But uh, it seemed naughty Well, it gave well. off that vibe of you really probably shouldn't be seeing this. Right. And, and it was interesting, too. But I think part of that, too, was a lot of times they were doing parodies of movies that I wasn't old enough to see. You know, it was like they do a Godfather parody. I wasn't old enough to see The Godfather when it came out. I had to wait till it came on TV, the, you know, the sterilized version. So that was my only connection to actually even knowing a little bit more about this movie that I kept hearing about was to read their parody of it. Yeah, and on occasion you'd be able to sneak into an R-rated film with one of your older pals. Right. I remember seeing The Poseidon Adventure and then seeing the Mad Magazine parody. I'll never forget Mort Drucker's take on Stella Stevens. You see this undulating bosom. Yes. And this is as close to porn as you're going to get when you're 10 years old. This is your... Yeah, you're you don't have access to anything other than these amazingly drawn, buxom characters. And Mort Drucker did a great yeah, yeah. job of God that. God bless Mort Drucker. Yes. <laughs> but, but Mac Magazine is just, just did it for me. It's, it's, it's still, I, you know, it's funny. I still look, look at the, uh, the magazine if I sit in the stand and see what's, what's up with it today. And, I'm, and I'm, I still follow what's gone on with those gentlemen, who's alive, who's not alive. It had right. enough impact on me because I, that I still, I still care about the creators of, of that magazine. I think a whole generation of, of comedy lovers and comedy creators had that as an influence for sure yeah. because it wasn't because it wasn't quite like anything else that was on TV certainly right uh, there wasn't anything quite that subversive until maybe Saturday Night Live came along right and SCTV and SCTV was, a little bit we discovered later because it finally came over right and, and Monty Python I guess sure. you know which started showing up on PBS and, and, and then Mel Brooks who's been the constant <sighs> in, in life I remember that was a big outing for me uh, if in my tiny town was a go with my parents to the local theater and see Young Frankenstein, which, you know, same thing. It's like this is really naughty when you're 11 years old, 12 years old, and there's, you know, there's plenty of sexual references. Oh, the knockers joke yeah, alone yeah, yeah. was yes, uh, right. you thought you were seeing something really, <laughs> really bad. That's right. You take the blonde, I'll take the one in the turban. Uh, Marty Feldman, right? <laughs> Uh, but oh, but so God. between and then Peter and Peter Sellers was another one. So for us, it was Peter Sellers and Mel Brooks, and and that was a nice, that was really a terrific way to grow up, and and to have it endorsed by your parents was 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 really <laughs> quite wonderful. So, uh, at what point did you begin to notice that the Marx Brothers were something? Because I know that when I was growing up. I did not have access to the movies. Um, I did not see them getting shown a lot. I saw, I had uh, in Texas, uh, the Channel 11 out of Dallas mm -hmm. showed, it, it depended on the time of year. They would go through the entire Universal horror catalog. So it would be like the Frankenstein, Werewolf, and Dracula movies. Mm -hmm. And then when they ran out of those, they would run every Abbott and Costello movie every Saturday. Right. So those were the, the things I watched every weekend. And I discovered the, the, the Marx Brothers in the books that they had put out, Why a Duck mm -hmm. um, and a couple of the other ones that basically just had still pictures from the original films with the dialogue in little captions. And it was just like a big picture book. Right, pre-VHS and, yeah. and beta. I had no access to the movies otherwise. Right. So I 
kind of had a, an appreciation for the material just from a joke standpoint before I even heard how it was delivered. Mm-hmm. So when did the Marx Brothers come into your life? Because they obviously had a huge impact. I, I had a friend, and uh, it, was, it was a Jewish kid next door, and there was that point of view in that family that the Marx Brothers had. You know, they, I think it was an, it's an outsider's point of view, and it was part of that culture very much so, not so much from an Italian Catholic uh, family. <laughs> so the, he was already well entrenched in the humor of the Marx Brothers. His, his father loved it. His grandfather loved it. And this pal of mine, Rich Eivler, came over and said, uh, Frank, you've got to put the TV set on. These guys are unbelievable. You've got to just put on the TV set. Trust me. I put on the TV set. And TV set, who calls it a TV set? But TV set. <laughs> well, we I am. did then. <laughs> and on, on the screen <laughs> is A Day at the Races and Groucho Marx is just riffing with is going is riffing with Chico. It's that Tootsie Fruitsie ice cream uh-huh. scene, and it was fast and furious. And there was something about the look in his eyes and the wisecracking and, and the, uh, the you know the talking out of the side of the mouth. It, it was great, and and I loved the hustle Chico's hustle of Groucho, and I kept watching the film, and I I fell in love with Groucho, and I became completely. Exhilarated. It was. It's to this day. It, it, it took my breath away. I can still feel it in my chest. The that feeling of of discovering something that's going to change my life, and it did. I. I. So, in where I grew up, there would be Marx Brothers Week on television. It, we, there was the CBS, NBC, ABC affiliates, and then you'd have KHJ and, and KTLA and a couple of the independent local stations. Right. So Channel Five would 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 have Marx Brothers Week and Monday through Friday, eight oh. o'clock, Channel Five, there'd be the you know, five you know, a Marx Brothers, there'd be a Marx Brothers movie Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday. So by this time you've seen Day at the Races and that's the only one you've seen. So that's you're it. you're you're asking questions, you're doing research, you're you're yeah. talking to people who are these guys. I'm going into the local library in Sierra Madre and I'm reading about the Marx Brothers and comedy and discovering uh, Groucho Marx's son is Arthur Marx, his books on his father. Uh, I'm looking at seeing Hirschfeld drawings of the Marx Brothers. Uh, the, the, really, the one that the biggie for me was Steve Allen's Funny Men. It was written in the 1950s, oh, right. and there was a chapter, and it was the original, you know, first edition, and there's a chapter on Groucho, Jimmy Durante, Jack Benny, you know, all the all the mainstays of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s comedy in America, and that was a thrill. That was enlightening. That was it. Just I just kept feeding this interest and passion. And I spent a lot of time um, uh, researching and, and going through the per- periodical guides and getting old newspapers yeah. and magazine. Literally, get the whole magazine, not the not the uh, microfiche. Or, right. you know, but right. we did that. Did that too. And I just read everything that that existed on 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 the Marx Brothers, and that led. And that really broadened Larry into an interest of all those comedians. I fell in love with Jack Benny. I fell in love with W.C. Fields and Laurel and Hardy. I thought, my God, I loved how specific it was. I loved that the personae were so, so distinct. They had a sound. They had a look. They had a feel. They had a point of view. I didn't know that at the time, but that's what was getting me, is that really, and in the case of Groucho Marx, he was speaking for the shy kid that I was and for so many of my shy friends, mostly male. Later, I found out there were plenty of female fans of the Marx Brothers, but... I ended up going to all boys Catholic school, and and uh, there's there's a bit of a Marxian sensibility when you got a bunch of guys sitting around who are teenagers wisecracking. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and you touched on it earlier with with Mad Magazine, the subversive nature of some of the comedy, which was always kind of this, uh, and that's become a classic aspect of comedy, which is kind of like this rabble versus the uh, establishment, for instance, you know, bringing down somebody at, at the top level. Absolutely. You know, as I get older, I, I, I mean, I love it. 
even more because I'm, I'm, I'm understanding I couldn't explain my attraction when I'm when you're eight nine ten eleven it's just pure inst- it's just it's just um, it's a visceral thing it's, yeah. it's it's just you don't you can't you don't know why it just feel you feel it you don't you don't you're not, I'm not intele- I never intellectualized it I just well, that's thought the, the beauty of some of those things that we watched as kids that we didn't necessarily like I think about that the same way about the uh, Warner Brothers cartoons the Looney Tunes the early ones with with Bugs and Daffy and all mm-hmm. that stuff we didn't get a lot of the references uh, some of them were dated and some of them were just over our heads right. but they were still funny and they were still the energy and the color and the and the and the comedy was solid and then they continued to resonate with us as we started to get older and understand the subtleties of the humor the references and just the the again subversive nature of what they were trying to say right and bugs bunny is is the one who's is 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 the outsider? You know, he's the, Elmer Fudd is the guy who's going to shoot him. He's just a guy right. in the forest trying to mind his own business, but not really. But uh, but he's Groucho. Yeah, absolutely. He's, and I remember watching Fritz Freeling, the creator, um, on Dinah Shore in the seventies, talking about how how Groucho, how Bugs Bunny was was completely based on Groucho Marx, from the nasality, hey, what's up, hey, Groucho Marx, oh, sure. to, the, to the carrot being the cigar, and the, just uh, the, the surreal moments that they would have within the cartoons were all Marx Brothers inspired. But as So I, all you knew as a kid it was that they were just funny. You just knew they were funny. They were funny, and I felt like I wanted to be brave like Groucho. I wanted to be fearless like Groucho, ah. and I felt... Having seen some things that were inexplicable the, the, from my teachers and these nuns at the time, that it sure would be great to have more control and to call the shots. And I still get that's why I love doing what I do. It's why I invented a character that's similar to Groucho in terms of improv, but, all, but, uh, but someone who causes chaos. And so the <laughs> rules will no longer apply. Right. The rules don't apply to Groucho Marx. When I had, I, I've been doing this, this, and you've seen me do this Caesar, Latin Caesar. lover character, right. is... is, is 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 of the same genetics, uh, the same same DNA. In that you, you, you're raising hell. You're trying you're you're trying to keep people off guard so you can do what you want to do. So your id can run wild. So you play by your own rules, and that is refreshing. And for me, it's been cathartic. And for me, it's probably it's probably kept me out of a loony bin really because it's <laughs> I needed to let so much you know, in a way rage out. I was very you know I had plenty of anger. As a kid, why? And why was that? I th- I think I think in part because of the of of the religious upbringing. Now, tell me a little bit more about your family life. Mm-hmm. You, what what did your parents do? Uh, my father was a stockbroker, and he came from a, they came he came from a poor family. He was self made. He put himself through USC, and my mom was a housewife. Italian uh, the 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 children of Italian immigrants, a very conservative Catholic middle class uh, family. Any. Creative leanings in there at all? And no, once, musical. No, and leanings? once in a while. No, not at all. Yeah. My my father, I think, is a is one of the funniest people I know, and would have loved to have been a teacher or a coach or a performer, and really went for an occupation where he thought he could make some money because he was really smart. He could have been a journalist or the stockbroker he became successfully, um, but he was not. By his own admission, he's around, and, and we're, we're friends now, and he, by his own admission, would like to have tried something else because he had he was very passionate and extremely bright and driven. And um, I, I think he's lived a little bit of his life through me in terms of what I've done. With right. it. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that 
that. And I, and I thank him. It's like, you gave me this gift. You know, I hope I can do that for my own children, that I can set them up to live out their fantasies and, and, and pursue their passions. Um, so when you, so you're in a somewhat restrictive environment, especially at school, especially in the Catholic school, uh-huh. and you discover this thing that unleashes a little part of you, this passion, this creativity that maybe you don't even understand, that manifests itself into what? Uh, did you start looking into <laughs> performing yourself? Did you want to do theater? I did. I and started, did you express that to your parents? I, no, I never, ever mentioned it to them. I just, no. I, I just did it. I would, really? do, I would do sketches in class in sixth, seventh grade. Uh, we, you know, you'd, we'd, you'd do, we'd, it'd be projects. You'd do, um, you'd do a commercial, little creative outlets um, like that. Uh, there'd be a talent show, and I'd host it. I remember hosting a talent show in eighth grade, and I put the makeup on really for one of the first times as Groucho, and I made, gave my first ad lib. And I, it was the end of the, it was it was the end of the talent show, and it was like epically long. It must have been, it felt like six hours. And you know, it's you know, you're watching kids try to sing and dance, and it was long and boring. At the very end, I said something like. Well, no one was any good, and no one wins the prize, and something to that effect. And there was like everyone, the entire school, spontaneous, just spontaneously erupted into laughter, and it was like a—I swear it was like just lightning had struck. I thought, oh my god, I could. I this can, was a I thing you this. had controlled that wasn't scripted for you, that you just reacted in the moment, and, and they—they they responded. Yeah, and I got to speak my mind, and yeah. I think—I uh, think I was—I was—I was afraid. I think as a kid, I think my my father was a was a was a strong figure and i i was i was i was scared uh not he was not mean to us he just was an imposing guy and so i was very careful about what i said really so i needed that outlet i needed so that that was a, became a saving grace for me so but when as you got older you must have expressed this desire to kind of pursue this this direction with your well, parents right? i had a i had a seventh grade nun a, a good nun not the evil nun who uh who took me she oh, was there was one there was one that was the one i had her and uh, i didn't have her but um that's I'm another sorry? story oh boy but uh she uh sister rachel and she she was this tall prudish lovely beautiful blue-eyed woman she was just lovely i mean she was so pure and and such a supporter and she said frank I, i'd like to take you down to the lee strasberg institute in hollywood i'll drive you down there and in school look into classes really so we got in this crummy vw bug with no well, i remember didn't have air conditioning and and we drove from sierra madre to hollywood and she just kind of showed me around nothing much came of it but it showed some wonderful it was wonderfully affirming that she saw something in me and uh, I, I'll never forget it. We stayed in touch up until, you know, even recently. I haven't talked to her lately, but this is, you know, 40-plus years ago, 40 years ago. Wow. And, but it was, uh, I remember being in high school, I thought, oh, you know, I was being recruited to do some plays on campus by the Christian brother. And I said, sure, fine. And then, then when it came to the audition, my mom in my sophomore year at LaSalle High School in Pasadena uh, pulls up to the front of the school, and I, I don't want to get out. I'm scared to death. And she, she's circling the school. <laughs> and she's circling us. And, and, and my mom was a very mild-mannered person. And finally, she said, Frank, get out of the car. And she pushed me out of the car, and I, and I read for the play, and it was my first getting my – I got my first play because of that. But, but that was my mom who saw that I needed something and that this felt right to her. And I, I, I'm grateful that she had the – the foresight to 
give me that little push. So and we you, all need a good push. Let's be at times. I still do. You know. <laughs> so you didn't ever feel like you were necessarily rebelling against something, but it, but you, you, you were encouraged to a certain extent. I, I was. I always felt it was not. It was abnormal for me to go into the arts. It was abnormal for me to be. You felt a performer. I felt that way. Really? Yeah, because no one else did it. I had nothing. No one. To, no, no one else in my. No one. I couldn't compare myself to anybody. It was new. I mean, who did this type of thing? It's crazy. I, I didn't know any adults. I didn't know any young people. I just knew the people that I saw on the screen, on television or in film, and the people I read about. Those and they seemed like they were creatures from another planet. But I remember being 15 years old at, and after having a couple of shows, you know, a few plays under my belt, and I remember praying and, and thinking, I want to do this. I want to make people laugh the way Groucho Marx made me laugh. And I would visualize it. I would see it. And what were, who what knew? were you aspiring to be? I mean, was it, was it an actor or was it a comedian? Were you thinking about stand-up? Or it, it's so did, strange. Did it have a form at that time? I wanted, I wanted to be an actor, a comic actor. Those are the guys I liked. I liked Peter Sellers. I loved Peter Sellers. I loved Mel Brooks. Um, and so I took that, that route with it. So I did plays in, in high school, and, and I did sketches in grammar school, and then went to USC and studied theater, as you yes. know. So, now, this is where I met you. Mm-hmm. And, and even then, you had the remnants. I believe—I I don't want to give credit to you if it belongs to your roommate at the time, no. but I believe there were— Literally, like little statuettes of Marx Brothers <laughs> about your do- your dorm room. There were. Um, you true. had uh, essentially a shrine to the Marx Brothers. Yes. So there was, unbeknownst to you, the all the earmarks of your career to come, basically, of this kind of devotion to yeah. that comedy and that style of comedy and those guys in particular. Yeah. That, that, they were, so that never waned. No, it didn't. It didn't. And, and I, you know, I, like you said, I worshipped them. It's funny. I had my Marks Brothers posters and my roommate had his Monty Python posters. Right. And we, the, the, we were well covered and the walls were well covered as well. So <laughs> it, it was great. It was, uh, yeah, he was the same way. He liked the same kind of humor. So so did you study? What, what, what was your major at yeah, USC? I, I started out as a communications major, which uh-huh. is like the biggest, you know, in other words, I didn't know what I wanted to do. That's where most people go when they decide <laughs> they are going to change their major mid, midstream. Which somewhere. is what I did. And yeah. when I was, I finally figured, you know what, this is what I want to do. Just do it. And as a junior, I met with uh, Professor William White at USC, who had been there for 40 years. And I told him my story, and they let me into the school. And it was Bill White, this this wonderful man. Uh, I think he had four teeth by the time I was there, and <laughs> it, just the lovely, he was sweetest guy in the world. He said, I, "It was my um, that year." He said, uh, "You know, we have something called directed research, Frank, and uh, which means you can put on your own. You can do whatever you want." So, what do you want to do? He said to me. He said more like, "What do you want to do, Frank?" He said how he really said it, and uh, I said, "Well, I, you know, I love comedy. I love comedy performance. I specifically like the Marx Brothers. Maybe I could put a show together about them." He said, "Okay." Now you said this. Co- I, d- I don't know that I knew this. You said this college yeah. age, college age, in my junior year, and he said, "Frank, we'll give you eight units at USC. You find the show. You find the venue. You, you know, you put it together. You publicize it. You raise the money. You star in it, and we will." We will give you units. Really? And USC has changed my life with that, and specifically Professor William C. White. And uh, that's what I went out to do. And I worked with my roommate, Topher Taylor, who later became a William Morris agent, who was a mutual friend of ours, and uh, ran, a, ran a, um, an animation company who had nothing but chutzpah 
and uh, liked me and loved me and saw that this would be fun to work work on with me. And he helped raise the money, $7,500 from the, from the campus, from the school USC student fund. <laughs> and we put on a show, and there was a full set, and, and I broke it in, and it was called An Evening with Groucho, and I broke it in in, in, in my hometown of Sierra Madre at the St. Rita's Church Hall 30 years ago this time, 30 years ago, 1984. And uh, it was packed, sold out two, two shows, 300 people. And uh, I, I proved that I could do this. Uh, had, I, was, we had, I, I practiced with a tape recorder. I grew up with Groucho's rhythms and the rhythm, rhythms of so many other comedians, but Groucho's specifically was, was in me. And I put together this 90-minute, two-act show, which would become the, you know, the, the genesis of what I do now and have been doing for the last 30 years and have done, in, as you know, in, in various incarnations in right. New York, London, and 400-plus cities. I, but that was the birth, and, and yeah, like you said, it's been it's transformed quite a bit since mm-hmm. then, and, and you've had different iterations of it mm-hmm. along the way. But that was the birth. How, how close to what it is now, how close was it then to what it is now? I have videotape of that first show, and then I did it at USC, where, where you, you saw it, I believe, mm-hmm. and, uh, in 1985. Um, it's it's changed immensely. The show, you know, I I have done a, a great deal of improv over the last thirty years with that role and with other roles, and I've done in other plays and directed plays, and you get pretty good on your feet if you get to do it. As you know, within your business, you get you you become quite glib and you think you have to think fast, and it becomes part of who you are right. and, and how you function. Uh, you know, I've dropped songs, I've cut material in favor. For the improv element, and uh, you know, I'm not a fan of imitating. I mean, I appreciate the art of imitation and impersonation, but I've never seen myself, and I don't mean that in a snarky or snotty way. I just don't. I'm not. Uh, I'm not really an Im- a great impersonator and imitator. I'm. An, I've always been an actor, and seen myself, fashioned myself as an actor. So and trained as an actor. So I'd never, you know, for me. I didn't want to just go up there and do routines and do songs. And for me, it was important to get into him and to keep it different every night like he did in real life, like he did in his life, right. in his career, in vaudeville, on Broadway, on tour, uh, on talk shows, on You Bet Your Life, as TV quiz show. You know, Some of that was scripted. Some of it was improvised. Uh, some of it was on teleprompter, uh, it, you know. So, but he was always either it was improved or made to seem improved, which well, is which is an art form unto itself. <laughs> I think that's what's what's become so interesting because you have basically immersed yourself in this character as Groucho for mm-hmm. so long that you have taken on the persona of him in a way that I think you, you know, as opposed to just like you said, repeating routines that have been seen a million times and done right. a million times. If you're going to call it an evening with Groucho, then why not? feel like we've been with the man a little bit. And that's kind of what it's become, is a combination of some of those great moments with what would it be like if he was in the room with us right now and he was responding to us as we are today. And uh, that's... I agree. I mean, that's... I mean, you know, as I... I keep evolving as I get older and modifying. As we get older, we call it modification, you know. I don't know if I'll be able to jump over a couch in 10 years. But, I, I, you know, I'm very physical in the show. I still am. But... I tend to I'm, I'm leaning more and more toward the storytelling and the interaction. To me, 
I feel confident now in my my performance and my work and what I've done, not just with this character, but with with other parts, with other sides of my career, with this Caesar character, with directing plays, with doing, you know, all, cumulatively, it's given me the confidence to, and and I've had some wonderful feedback by people I really respect, and so it's so it's been a there's been a calming in a way and a grounding and a rooting right. that comes with just living life and working hard, and struggling, and 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 living a life as a freelance comic actor, which well, is what I am. Let's talk about that a little bit, because obviously you've done other things. I mean, uh, there might, may have been a point where you felt like, well, I can't be Groucho for the rest of my life. There was. And you certainly must have wanted to expand into other things. What What were some of the other projects that you worked on after after college? I mean, was this a struggling period, just like any other actor, of just trying to, trying to get out there and trying to get noticed and trying well, to get I was, seen? Well, I was fortunate because at that USC performance, you know, Groucho Marx's son, Arthur Marx, was at the show, and uh, he was a playwright, and he said to me, after this performance, and uh, Groucho Marx's daughter, Miriam, was present, and, and Maury Riskind, who, who co-wrote Animal Crackers and The Night at the Opera, and the Coconuts, he's in the audience, he's 89, and after this performance at SC, Arthur Mark said, if I, ever, if I ever do a show again about my father, I'd like to use you. So that was that was big, and so... You've had that relationship now ever since. You basically have been the mm-hmm. sanctioned mm-hmm. Marx Brothers performer. Just by default, I think, because no one else is <laughs> well, doing it, no. and... and uh, and uh, I've always had the support of, of these guys. You know, Arthur died three years ago, but we worked together. Uh, what happened was he hired me for his show, and then I played Groucho Marx from age 15 to 86 to, you know, to 85 in New York off-Broadway and then did it in London for six months, and then it was done on PBS. And, and that was written by Arthur Marx. And, yes, as a 23-year-old, 22-year-old boy, he took me under his wing and said, I, I want you to do this. And um, I'm backtracking, and so— that was my entree. My entree, that means, so how do you then do something else? I mean, right. I'd never auditioned for anything before professionally. I've never acted professionally on any, in, in anything else, no plays. I haven't directed anything. So I, I was working backwards, and it took me a few years, quite a few years, to kind of figure out, how do I crack this? I went on dozens and dozens of auditions and, and tried to reinvent myself. And, uh, you know, I did plays. I was in region slowly. I was, you know, I would, I did animal crackers and then people saw, wait, you know, he can carry a show. Maybe he can try something else. Maybe he could be the lead in a, in another different kind of musical or different kind of play. And then certain theaters saw me like the Walnut street theater in Philadelphia. And, and I've worked there for, it's been 20 years. They brought me in and they said, wow, you really, we like what you've done with, with this Groucho role. Why don't you, could you direct this for us? And all of it happens that way. And then I started directing plays at at, uh, at the Walnut Street Theater and developed one piece I developed that I was really proud of was a two-hander um, that involved a Holocaust survivor called Old Wicked Songs. I found the show, and I edited the piece, and it premiered at, at the uh, Walnut Street Theater, and it went beautifully, and it was, it was nominated for a, a Pulitzer Prize, and that was a big deal. I thought, wow. well, you know what? Maybe I've got uh, a real theatrical sense. I understood the rhythm of the written material. And, uh, well, you couldn't have you – know, the way you described that, here we were talking about Groucho and comedy and, uh-huh. and all these kind of crazy antics uh-huh. of that tr- – and to delve into something 
literally diametrically opposed from that. Yeah, in a, in a way, because because of Groucho, I was exposed to so many different kinds of playwrights and different kind of playwriting, and you know, from Arthur Miller to Tennessee Williams to you know, the list goes on. So you end up reading everything and doing scenes from all these great plays and from Shakespeare to Moliere, and and so all that's part of your awareness. Well, were you purposely trying to distance yourself from no, that was, kind of material? I was purposely trying to stay employed, quite okay. frankly, you know, and <laughs> honestly, Larry. Well, and, that's, that's a great motivator. And this play, you know, it uh, it um, it ignited my interest. It was it was a beautiful piece of writing and uh, had a lilt to it that was familiar. And it kind of was written almost with a bit of a vaudevillian spirit, and it was a serious dramatic piece. It was a dramatic piece with humor. And sometimes, as you know, you read someone's work and you just identify with it. It feels like it's you're on the same frequency with that work. You get it. And I got this guy, and I did a I directed a ton of Neil Simon, which you know, which was you know, well, people go, everyone's done, everyone does Neil Simon, but I got to do Neil Simon with the best actors in New York and in Philadelphia, with Tony Walton, who designed the set, who designed the original New York set. And I got to work with really great, wonderful people, and I got to play. The Sid Caesar inspired role in Laughter in the Twenty Third Floor. Oh, great show! And I got to do that, and I got to direct it. And so I was getting all these opportunities to work with the with great costume designers, lighting designers, great producers. I mean, they it was so there was all that starting to happen. And um, but working in the regional theater doesn't pay the pay the rent, quite frankly. And I liked creating new work. I loved creating that show, Old Wicked Songs, because it was brand new. That excited me. I loved directing Biloxi Blues and Broadway Bound and Brighton Beach Memoirs and Lost in Yonkers and Sunshine Boys and Laughter on 23rd Floor. That is great because that really, that you have to be specific, and it's all music of the language, and every beat counts, and I love that kind of work, and I like directing that kind of work. There's a reason George C. Scott and Maureen Stapleton were cast in Plaza Suite. It's always the best actors in Neil Simon's play. People mm-hmm. plays, and people put down Neil Simon because everyone has done it in their in their you know in their kindergarten production practically, <laughs> and so all you see are really lousy productions right. of what are basically tragedies. I mean, two guys, an odd couple I've done, you know, two divorced guys in their mid forties live together. That's a laugh riot. Two dying comedians. Who hate each other are put together are put together for last one last, last performance. Hurrah, right. That's hilarious. You know, it just goes on and on. You can go down the line. It's like they're all really tragic. Right. <laughs> well, I, the premises I guess that's, and, and that's know, it. All all the comedy comes from from tragedy. All most this. people have said that you know, really when you kind of pare it back like that, take the laughs out of it. It's actually a tragedy. I mean, that's that's where you get the comedy from. Right. Yeah. And and you and you need equally good actors to pull off Absolutely. some of the stuff which it's a fine line that kind of material that's why Walter Matthau and Art Carney were in The Odd Couple you, the list goes on Sam Levine and Jack Albertson in The Sunshine Boys I mean, if, if you look at these cast lists my point is I love doing that material and hiring great actors to, to be in really good work like this and um, so this was all going on while I was trying to I kept saying I can't you know this is going to have to end at some point that doing an evening with Groucho or Groucho a life in review which was the show that Arthur had written and at some point I said wait a minute I've gotten really good at this I've done hundreds now thousands of performances many you know hundreds of cities I love doing this it keeps changing it's still interesting every show's different maybe I can do this show as long as Hal Holbrook who's been doing his Mark Twain show <laughs> right and and make people 
respond and love it. And so you it, weren't too afraid of being identified with just that one thing. I, honestly, I was for a while, but I kept amassing more credits and experience. And I had people in the theater and in, in the arts who were seeing the work as I was getting older and going, this is, this is something special. Don't, don't stop doing it. You need to keep doing this. We want you to keep doing this. And people are respected. And um, it was affirming. I said, you know what? Let go of that. Let go of that and be proud of this piece of work mm-hmm. and keep working on it and loving it. And as I get older, I, I lean on different, uh, different parts of him. It, I lean on his... His intellectual interest. There are stories now on the show about T.S. Eliot. Uh, he's, I sing a Gilbert and Sullivan song, Titwillow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to represent his spirit. And I would say, Larry, today, I would, I would guess less, I'd say more, less than 10% of the audience knows, is really, really familiar with Groucho Marx. I would say when I'm playing Dublin, Ohio this week or Marietta, Ohio, I'd say maybe 1% of that audience is familiar with him, has seen a Marx Brothers movie. So I have to score. I have to, through sheer will, well, <laughs> you know, make it, them like this guy. And I, this, I have a show. feeling like like the way you and I discovered you know the Marx Brothers in a in a very roundabout way, and not mm-hmm. really having access to instant gratification in terms of. I mean, you saw one movie and you went and did research. I right. was I was reading the material in a picture book. Yeah, I remember and that book. <laughs> getting it across. Um, so you are keeping that flame alive a little bit in a way for people to go out and kind of rediscover those things, to understand. I mean, he's, he's Groucho in particular is a presence, a comedic presence worth that sort of revisit, revisitation and, and because he's so unique and so uniquely funny. Nothing feels dated. Nothing feels out of place. The way he did his comedy is timeless. And I, so I think you are kind of keeping that flame alive in that way. I'm, I'd like to think that's, that's part of what's going on here. I, I love when I hear from kids, younger people going, you know, I've never seen a Marx Brothers movie. Now I'm going to go watch Duck Soup. I'm going to go watch A Night at the Opera. And that, that to me is that's th- thrilling. You know, that makes me feel, feel great. And in the meantime, I mean, I know that you took Groucho with you to Seattle. Yes. When you were doing, I'm going to screw up the name. I always mess up the name of uh, Teatro Zanzani. Teatro Zanzani, right? And this is how do you describe Teatro Zanzani? It's like it's in this kind of great combination of vaudeville and comedy with Cirque du Soleil and a great dinner thrown in. I mean, what a fascinating concept it, it is. It's 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 really elegant vaudeville is what it is. Yeah, and they're they they're acts from. All over the world, and and they've I've for the last fifteen years, Larry, I've for four to six months a year, I have done done the show it, either in San Francisco or in Seattle, and all of it takes place under a hundred year old Belgium tent, what they yes. call a Spiegel tent. It's gorgeous. It's 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 an elegant. As you walk in, as you know, it's like an elegant bordello. It's rich. It's lush. <laughs> it's plush. It's it's they're beautiful. The burgundy, cur- velvety curtains. You, and you feel like you've walked into a, a, a completely different world, absolutely. a fantasy world of some kind. And you wouldn't know it from the outside. And, but this place keeps going. And um, everyone, and, you know, it's, in San Francisco, it attracted, you know, 
thousands and thousands, you know, 70 percent locals, the rest tourists. But, you know, the mayor, Willie Brown, would be there. Uh, George Lucas would show up. John Penn would show up. I mean, you know, it, it didn't matter. Everyone was drawn to this piece because they'd heard how outrageous it was. And uh, it's a three and a half hour extravaganza. It's everything from, you know, you you have typically been like a host or, right. or one of the main characters mm-hmm. that kind of guides things along. And then mm-hmm. there's acrobatic acts and there's kind of these, I mean, it's, Contortion, it's, it's foot beautifully jugglers. constructed. It's, it's, it's like, like I've never seen. And yeah. one of the reasons I don't do more so-called straight, legit theater is because I became completely addicted to this form. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, you know, if you do a play, if you're doing The Death of a Salesman, if you're doing... Sunshine Boys, there's, you know, you're not going to vary from the script. No, I or mean, the, or, it's, a, it's a great material, but it's it needs to be pretty much the same every night. Yeah, or the or the Sound of Music, right. it's you know. Right. But I became addicted to the interaction with an audience, yeah. and that's what happened. It's it was it's the most brutal thing I've ever uh, attempted to be. You know, you're you're playing in a, in a in a circle. It's in a tent, and your stage space is a nine foot diameter, and you're playing in the round. And there's a full band there. You know, the best musicians in San Francisco or Seattle. And I played it in Amsterdam last year as well. And it's your job to make people laugh in the round. Uh, I, I do about, I do three sets, about an, about an hour of material I do. And I bring on eight different people to play with. Every night is different. And that's, it's, it's you know, I've always wanted my own persona. Loving Groucho. There's only one Groucho. And, and. And my job is, is, as I would say, as an actor, is, is to filter his style and spirit through my own skill. But there's only one Groucho. If you want to see a Marx Brothers movie, see Duck Soup. I'm not Groucho. I will give you a theatrical take on it and, a, and, and maybe a, a sense of what it may have been like to be, as you say, with him in 1934 in a summer stock theater in Maine, Skowhegan, Maine, be, between films <laughs> when he wasn't working with his brothers. That, right. I mean, that is, that's my... That's the con- the convention in my mind. We, you know, we're going to sit around with Groucho. He's going to tell stories, sing songs, improvise with you, and hopefully, I'll exhilarate you the way Groucho exhilarated me when I was a boy. But there was only one Groucho. He came up with this. I mean, it, he's so great that someone like me can come along later and take it on and and kill with it. You know, that's how I feel. That's how that's how precise and the defined material is that good. And his perf- and his uh, style was that. Yeah, and his vi- the visual, the mustache, the eyebrows, the glasses, the hair, yeah. the lope, the sound. It's it's all of it is so particular and well honed over over so many years. And I always wanted that of my my own. I don't want to be. I want to be. I want to have my make my own contribution. So this is where world. Caesar came from. And that's where Caesar uh, came from. So I can figured, we hear a little Caesar. <laughs> What would I, what would I, I do? know I threw the curve. Oh, no, I would say, uh, uh, Larry, you are such a gorgeous man. It was the whole thing was the thick accent, and and uh, what would I say? Uh, I'd have to. You'd have to tell me what you do. We, we, it's all exchange driven. So what I'll, I'll what I've come up with with this, Larry, is that if you tell me your name, I have a joke for your name. You tell me your profession, I'll, I'll do something in your profession. Right. But um, all of it is it's extremely physical. Uh, and it's garish, and my guy is, uh, you know, he's got the big mole and a little mustache did and he, huge did hair. It, did it come from somewhere? Is he, this a it, well, person you know? Or a, it was, a, well, it's a little bit of me, uh, <laughs> it, it quite frankly, exploded. But the guy has, is lust-ridden. It's, uh, he has no, uh, well, it's really, you. it's, you know, it's, it's all of us, really, I, in a way. I mean, I, the best compliment I ever got was, you know, I live vicariously through the Caesar. And, um, and what that meant was he got it. I mean, the guy drinks too much. He womanizes too much. He's out of control, and he doesn't know what a, what a buffoon he is uh, <laughs> because he's completely filled with joy, and he's com- completely unaware of, of the fact that he's in- inappropriate. And um, 
you know, I've got my guy wears lipstick and he's got red cheeks and, you know, he loves men, women, dogs. It wouldn't matter. You know, that's that's part of the guy. You know, it's like, look at you. You're a beautiful, you're a beautiful man. What is your name? And I'll go off on. On, and someone will tell me their name, and then I'll, and I'll, then it's you know, to, you know, we're at the off to the races, but um, you know, it's again like so many things that Groucho did. There was a, there was a like on You Bet Your Life. There's a thin premise, and the rest is filled in with with the improvisation. Right, so, right. So it's funny when you say do him. It's like I've never, yeah. I, I don't have any. You I don't realize, have lines. I don't have lines. All yeah. that comes from situ from situations, yeah. and I, so I developed the act on the floor. I ran out there with like barely anything, and then by the time you know just a few minutes of material, and by the time I years had passed, I'd had an hour worth of material, and I'm supposed to open up a, a tent in in Chicago uh, next year. So, so San this Francisco's, continues then. Yeah, they're 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 going to oh, Teatros and Zani is opening more more tents around around the country. So you've had, I mean, now you're a, you're a grown up human. You've had <laughs> you've had children, yeah, and you do have this very vaudevillian kind of life. You're uh-huh. you're traveling a lot. How has that been in terms of having some sort of real family life? Has it been well, tough? Yeah, you know, it's like anyone's life. My, you know, I, I grew up. My father was a stockbroker, and I, I never saw my father because he worked like most fathers did from early morning till till night. So I was asleep when he left, and I was asleep when he came home. And on the weekends, he was beat and wanted to watch, you know, watch sports, watch football or baseball. So. You know, but he was a great dad. But he kept us going. Um, it's unorthodox my schedule, but my kids. <laughs> I, I work. You know, if I do one nighters throughout the country in an evening with Groucho, I'm gone just for the weekends. And when I'm home, I'm home with my kids 24 hours a day. So we have a really, you know, we I have that time with them. Or if I go away for a block of three to four months, it's usually in the summer, or even if it's in the fall, they come with me. For oh, chunks of time, that's great. you know, and I'm and if I'm working during and I have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays off, I fly home, and I'm with them all the time. They're with me at work, so it's a it's a balancing act, like like all of us have as as parents. Is it typical? Do people think you're never there? Yeah. Do I ever do I answer to that all the time and have to like defend it in a way? It's, I just I just realize at this point, it's like no one's going to get the kind of the the lifestyle unless you're a, a stand up comic or a stage performer or a musician. Will you understand uh, how you can make that work, and and how in some ways you know, my kids have really benefited? My I never knew what my dad did. I don't know what a stockbroker was, Larry. I mean, right. he never explained it to me, and I never went to his work. My kids come to work; they work with me. They watch me do it. They watch other performers. They watch designers create. It, it, you know, they're, do they have a creative spark? Have you seen that in they any both, of them? They're both. They both do. They both do. They're really bright. My daughter is committed to to do it at age twelve. She uh, she edits you know she edits films on her on the computer on her oh, computer wow. and she dances and sings and wants to perform and she's on you know she's checking out backstage magazine on her own looking for auditions. These are things I would never have ever ever never have had the the audacity or the guts to do. I was like I said I was really timid about it. She doesn't think about it because she just sees me out there roaring. As Groucho, roaring as Caesar, right. uh, sees me directing and telling people, you know, help, you know, what to do, and help. And she sees me shaping shows, and she sees me in charge, and she sees me in a, a confident, envi- you know, place and an environment. So she just does it. So, and she's and she's into it, and she's you know, she is really driven. My son, who has this natural, he's ten years old, has a natural sense of humor. I think he's the funniest one of us all. 
and uh, he doesn't have. A, he does, says he has no interest. He loves sports. He loves football. He's consumed with football. And he, the way I was with comedy, I was. Uh, he's he is with sports, but and specifically football. I was able to engage in life because of humor. I was able to talk about comedians with other kids and comedy with grown-ups. And he does it with sports. He can talk the philosophy of the game, strategy, oh, wow. history, stats. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't want to tell him I'd never sat through an NFL game until I took him to Philadelphia a couple weeks ago to see the Eagles play the Jets because that was his fantasy. And that first 10th birthday, that's what I did. Where, where does that come from? I have no idea. That's, isn't that strange? I, he just... But, but isn't that also what you did? I mean, mm-hmm. you discovered something that you didn't necessarily have an influence from a, a parent or an immediate you know, a family member or anything. It was it was something inside you that just clicked with something that, that you found almost by accident, and yeah. that became your passion. I, I, I cannot explain. I had nothing to do with his interests, yeah. and, and which is, to me, it's fascinating. Yeah. It is fascinating. I just know that uh, he loves it. He loves it. You know, And there's so much going on in football right now and in terms oh, of you know, and, and not necessarily positive things. I, it, it actually allows and invites dialogue. Yeah. In terms of what goes on in real life, in relationships with the relation, you know, toward, and, and attitudes toward women, and, and, and so children forth, children, and, and yes, and yeah. children, yeah. and and so much more. Yeah. So you can say the same thing about any any part of our lives, whether it's entertainment or athletics, or you go down the line. So over the dinner table, we have these wonderful conversations about, well, what do you think about this? And and he wants to play Pop Warner, and it's like, you know, then there's all these. All this information coming out on on the concussions and the damage that's been done over the decades, and and it has to be discussed because he's he's playing it. And I said, "Do you sure you want to play Pop Warner? Or do you want to do one more year of flag football?" And and he loves the strategy of it. He loves the the plotting of it and the planning. And um, I don't know if I want to see him get knocked around at age ten, quite frankly. And uh, but he <laughs> anyway, there it is. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, it's again what I love seeing is that the that the passion mm-hmm. that both of my kids have. They are very passionate about what they do, and 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 I've always said to them since they they, they don't know what I was talking about. I do do what you love, and they're looking at me. Then they're you know several months old, going, "Dad, what do you you know?" <laughs> they, they could speak then. They say, "Dad, what are you talking about?" No. Oh, wow, boy, they started. <laughs> they really are age. bright. <laughs> yeah, bright kids. <laughs> so Groucho continues. Yes. Um, you have more shows upcoming. Correct. I do. I mean, I, you're going to be traveling every more. every every year. I do twenty five to thirty five cities throughout the world. Where are you going to so, be in the next couple of months? I'm going to be in Philadelphia. I'm going to be in the state of Ohio. I'm going to be in Maryland, Pennsylvania, um, all over. How can people find you then? Uh, the, the, the easiest way is a, is a site, website that has my, my, my schedule, which is on uh, even, eveningwithgroucho.com. Great. And then if anyone is there, and, and also if they, they want to like it on Facebook, it's an evening with Groucho, I often give out comps. I'm allowed a certain amount of tickets per show, and I love sharing the wealth with anyone who's interested in, in this type of comedy or interactive comedy. I, you know, if you're just interested in being entertained for a night at the theater that will make you laugh and make you feel good, then people have to check it out. So you don't even need to know anything about the Marx Brothers or Groucho Marx when you go in there, but it's it's an amazing time. You do an incredible job. Thank you. And it just begins, as you said, it becomes richer and more of a full experience every time I've seen it. It's, Thank you. It's pretty I, amazing. I was so happy to see you at that show, you know, because people say they're going to go, and it's like, okay, and then I get it. We have busy lives, so no, it's, that it's, was a treat to it's see you. It's too much fun. 
Can, uh, would you have a problem if, if I talk to Groucho for a little bit before we go? Not at all. Um, so, Groucho, um, I know this is, I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept of a podcast before. It's kind of like radio. But yes, here we yes, uh, I have. I, I worked in radio, and, and Larry, you've, you're magnificent. I know you've had a, a, a magnificent career in, in radio, and of course, you have a, you have a face for pod. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> This is too cruel. It's like I can't insult. I can't insult my friend as Groucho. This I, is how much I I like you. I would be honored if Groucho insulted. You know the me. old joke. You know you've got a face for radio. You've got a face for podcasting. Thank Who you. knew? There I had to say. Somebody had to say it. Thank you. I was glad it was you. Uh, I, I can't hurt. You know, see, that's the difference. I can't hurt a friend. You know, deep down, I'm actually a nice, yeah. nice, sweet guy. I don't. I have a twisted spirit, uh, but I don't know if I could ever get as dark as the real the real man did. You know. <laughs> well, now go ahead. If you want to proceed with this, we 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 shall, dear man. Oh, uh, I'm just uh, well. Then let's not talk about me. Let's talk about your friend Frank there, who's and it's about time too. Yeah. See, well, we've only been doing that for the last hour. It only feels like an hour. <laughs> so you've seen. Uh, you have obviously uh, from the great beyond seen. This young man take on your persona. Young now, now, now we're talking. Yes. How how's he been doing? I'm, well, you've seen him. It's pretty miserable, don't you think? At this point, I, I I enjoy it actually. I wish I could be getting a royalty from beyond the grave. Quite frankly, at this point, now did, he is handsome, though I noticed. Now you you were a fairly wealthy man in your day, correct? You yes, I was. Yes. What did you spend? No, your money not so on? loud because the IRS may come at me from beyond the grave. <laughs> Well, I just I'd be curious to know what what after did you... three wives I wasn't doing that great, quite no, frankly. No, is that where a lot of your money went? Yes, and it was hardly worth it, Mister Morgan. Well, I know you weren't as You've bad. You've been as, married, haven't you? I weren't as bad. You weren't as bad as your brother Chico, but you did enjoy no. the ladies, didn't you? I did it. I did. I did. That's true. I do. Yeah. Still do. Yeah. Oh, really? Marilyn sends her best, by the way. Wow, Marilyn. Yes. Okay, you Marilyn did. Schwartz. She says hi. <laughs> I'm not familiar with Miss Schwartz. Well, maybe you will be when you join me here, and it might be any minute the way your career is going. What? You heard me. Okay, now I don't. Don't turn on me. <laughs> I love you, Larry. That's all I can say to you, and I have no taste whatsoever. Oh, thank pipe you. Up, pipe, pipe up any time you want, Morgan. No, I think I'm, I'd, rather, I'd rather get the... No, there's so many great Morgans. There was Frank Morgan. Mm-hmm. There was Harry Morgan. Yes. And now there's Larry Morgan. Indeed. I ranked them in the order, by the way, of popularity, <laughs> of course. Well, at least I'm in third place. Well, well, that's yes, yes. You, you. It's a win place and showed, and you showed. Uh-huh. You showed that you were in third place. That's not a joke. It's just a comment at this point. <laughs> now, listen, Larry. You're just wasting your breath, and that's no great loss either. By yeah. the way. All right. Okay. Now I'd like Frank back, please. <laughs> no, I'm. Get, I feel. I'm feeling quite <laughs> no, nice. This no, is starting I'd, to feel good, Larry. No, I'd really like to talk to Frank. Now. <laughs> Frank Ferrante, just a, a joy to talk to you. And uh, whatever is next. Whether it's Groucho and or Beyond from the Beyond, uh, it's just a, a pleasure to see you uh, do your work. Here. Thank you, thank you for uh, you know you have a son who's who's in the in the trenches with in the theater, so you you can you can relate. Um, this is a certainly a freelancer's existence, and I have been very very fortunate to be this new vaudevillian. Well, t- talk to people who. I mean, so many of these people that I talk to, because they have reached a certain level of success in whatever they might be doing. And you can say success, because to be able to make a living doing what you're doing it has to be a success. You have to feel some satisfaction in that, because it's what you wanted to do. Um, but it hasn't always been easy, and you created something on your own. I, I don't know that I even remembered that it was the story of you creating the show out of your USC thing. But you created a career for yourself. Yes. So 
And that takes a lot of hard work and a lot of patience and some heartbreak along the way. So how would you talk to young people in particular, or anybody who wants to do something creative, anybody who wants to do something in the arts? Um, is that what they do? Do they need to make their own I, I think opportunity? so. Opportunity? You know, Larry, I do, when I, I play a lot of theaters, and a lot of, many of these theaters are on college campuses, beautiful theaters on, at universities, and I do outreach, and I, do, I give a master class, and I've always encouraged young performers to, to have their own piece. I, I, I would, I mean, I've done one-person show workshops. Have an act, whether you're doing, telling your own story for 45 minutes or 90 minutes or the story of, your, of different family members. Take on the different uh, personalities of family members or historical <laughs> figure. Whatever it is, have something or an act. If you're a singer, come up with a cabaret act. Have something you can do when you're not being hired. And that's 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 what I just find a place to put it on. That's that's yeah. what I tell you. That's what I tell students, high school and college age students and graduate students. The other thing that I've that's what I've learned because my whole life has been based on that premise of just do it and do it so it's containable and you can take it anywhere. My show is called a suitcase show. I'm literally going to travel tomorrow morning to Philadelphia and all the props and costumes are in a suitcase. The venue will provide the piano and the furniture pieces and so forth for an evening with Groucho. The other thing. I tell young people is what Uncle Milty himself, Milton Berle, told me once at the Friars Club. I would go there. I was like one of the youngest members. And I would sit with Milton Berle and pick his brain. And uh, it was magnificent. And he used to say to me, Francis, Francis, do everything. Just do everything. And I got I, And I thought at first, I thought, well, gee, that didn't seem very discerning. you know. But I got what he meant. You know, I'm, you're not, we're not, most of us are not in a position to be choosy. And I've gotten more work, and we were talking about this earlier, doing things that I was not crazy about doing. Doing that performance for $5 at an equity waiver theater, playing a 70-year-old German director, because I was helping out a friend who ran the theater. He needed, he needed someone to sub. Well, someone in that audience had remembered me from New York and hired me to play Groucho, and in this case, also direct. It was the beginning of my directing career back in 1992, and I'd been directing a part of the union and continued to direct plays because I did this $5 job in L.A. I did a benefit at Pierce College in Woodland Hills where you know I'd received nothing. It was not a particularly pleasant experience, but I did it, and the show went well. And I'm glad I did it because in the audience was a friend of someone who ran teat who owned Teatro Zanzani. I've been working at Tia, and he told that owner of Teatro Zanzani, Norman Langell, you should hire this guy. He's great with improv. And it's been 15 years I've been working at that company for four to six months a year. I could, if I just did that job, I could, I could live, you know, on that. And so that is what it really goes back to what Milton Berle said: do everything. Something will land. It's a numbers game. If I'm trying to get a show booked, I'll send out 20 packages out i'm still have to do my own hustle you know there's no agent for the most part i have an agent who books my one-man show but in terms of anything else i do that's my own hustle and if you send out 25 packets and you hope one or two people say yes it never changes and you know what george s kaufman the great the great playwright pulitzer prize winning playwright who wrote you know some of the you know who directed the original guys and dolls who wrote for the marx brothers did you, the man who came to dinner you can't take it with you at the end of his career said it never gets easier it never gets easier, and so if we can accept that, we're we're all we're all okay, and it it doesn't have to be easier. Why should it get easier? I I have a lot of friends in their eighties and nineties and seventies, and I look at them, look toward them and to them uh, for inspiration. And and performers and comedians are fighters. 
and that's what I love. They're resilient. I'm a, I think I'm cut from that cloth. Joan Rivers is cut from that cloth. People like that who just, and I've seen, I've seen all the greats, all my heroes I saw before they died. Bob Hope, George Burns, Sid Caesar, Groucho Marx. I saw them all. Jerry Lewis, he's still alive, but I you know what I'm saying. Yeah. All of these legends I've seen perform in, in, right before they passed away or in their old age, and I just marveled at their tenacity and their Henny Youngman. It goes on. And I, I, I model myself uh, after them. I don't f- feel there's an ending. There's no retirement for us. And uh, I love that idea. It's like, oh, gee, at 65, I'm done, or at 78, I'm done. No, you, you know, you go, you go when you go. You, you, stop, you, you stop performing only in death. And so that's my timeline. So I've already kind of put it at 102. That I'll be here doing something. I, I, so I think that's a good—and I've been fortunate in that— my life in the last 30 years is I've, I, on a regular basis, I get to hear laughter, whether I am joyful or not. If I'm feeling sad, and which happens, and, or depressed, you know, I am blessed in that it's ameliorated by the sound of laughter, which, kind of, which washes over me. That's a, great, that's a great thing to be around, that kind of response in your life. That's, that, it's, it's, a, it's a magnificent life, but it takes a, it's taken me a long time to get to this place and I feel that I'm fortunate to be a working comic actor on the road and uh, we're we are a rare breed I realize that a rare breed indeed mm. excellent Frank Ferrante thank you for talking with us thank you Groucho thank you for talking with thank us thank you Larry come here kiss me you fool let me turn off the microphones <laughs> before we do that well, we squeeze in we got laughs we had we had Get a monkey. Get a monkey! This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.